around us is full of wonders, some of which we think we understand, others which are still mysteries. One that particularly intrigues me is a thing called SS-433, that's just the astronomical designation. Nobody knew even what it was like until recently, but now we have some idea of its structure and it's an extraordinary object, it's unique. SS-433 is one of the classic unexplained objects in astronomy. From some central source, there are two beams or jets heading out in opposite direction where matter has been hurtled out in enormous quantities at a colossal velocity, at a, about a third the speed of the velocity of light. That's a couple of hundred million miles an hour. Something is shooting out in opposite directions and at the same time it's sort of spinning around in space. Extraordinary. What's powering it? What is it? Well, I've once made a suggestion, which is even more terrifying than the object itself, that it may be a discarded child's toy. I was only half joking when I suggested that SS-433 might be a product of some technology. If technology does proceed, as we think it will, eventually it's hard to set a limit to what may be done by a super-civilization. Being completely wheelchaired doesn't stop my mind from roaming the universe. On the contrary, Arthur Clark, one of my very favorite people, who has been with us at CBS for several of these missions now. And Arthur, what do you think we ought to do next? I mean, what would you like to see? Today, we can just reach the moon. Tomorrow, men will be living there. A hundred years from now, some men will call it home. With the techniques which we are now acquiring, it will one day be possible to modify the environments on at least some of the planets so that men can live there without spacesuits or airtight cities. The universe appears to be at least 5,000 million, perhaps many times that, years old. And we have just arrived in the last million years of that enormous span of time. We have no evidence at the moment that life exists anywhere else in the universe, but it seems absolutely inconceivable, and I think most astronomers today will go along with me, that in this gigantic universe, we are the only living things and the only intelligent things. It's far more probable that there are more races ahead of us than behind us, and that we may be very low indeed in the hierarchy of cosmic intelligence. Look at the images uh, from the Galileo spacecraft. Um, there's some extraordinary formations there. And the one I mentioned specifically, it does look like a city. It doesn't require much imagination to see that these are city streets. The fact that they are five kilometers so wide is a minor detail. <laughs> Thank you.
strange fascination for Saturn and its family of moons. By the way, that family has been growing at a very impressive rate. When Cassini was launched, we knew only 18 moons. I understand it's now 60 and counting. Uh, I can't resist the temptation to say, my God is full of moons. And I was really spooked in the early in, in 2005 when the Huygens probe returned sound recordings from the surface of Titan. This is exactly what I described in my 1975 novel Imperial Earth, where my character is listening to the winds blowing over the desert plains. that there are things that are not explained scientifically. I mean, that, that yes. things like um, love or spiritual values, if you will allow that phrase or something like that, uh, that, that there's something that adds up beyond all the physical things you know about them, that is beyond that. It yes. doesn't have anything to do with atoms. And... Well, I hope there always will be, because it would be very dull if you explain everything, and there's no point really in, in living any longer if there are no mysteries, no wonders, no new places to explore, no new ideas. Because the future is not merely an extension of the present with bigger and better machines and cities and gadgets. It will be fundamentally different. And many of the things we take for granted will one day pass away as completely as all oh, spinning wheels and sedan chairs and oil lamps. The mobile phone has revolutionized human communications and is turning humanity into an endlessly chattering global family. What does this mean for us as a species? Communications technologies are necessary but not sufficient for us humans to get along with each other. This is why we still have many disputes and conflicts in the world. I am sure that there are many life forms that would look, you know, they have the same engineering outlines, two arms, two legs, but they, they wouldn't be human. And this human by definition almost is, is us. to gather and disseminate information. But we also need qualities like tolerance and compassion to achieve greater understanding between peoples and nations. I would like to see us overcome our tribal divisions and begin to think and act as if you're one family. I have great faith in optimism as a guiding principle, if only because it offers us the opportunity of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
future is wide open. It's up to us what we do about it. Our de destiny is at least to some extent under our own control. Clark was a master of context, wasn't he, in terms of applying statistics? He would look at the past and look at very specific intervals of time and help the next generation or the new technology. And he made a, a point essentially stating that, you know, older generations are going to scoff at newer ideas and younger people are going to be unafraid to ask the questions that the older people aren't. And there's been a slow progression throughout remarkable history where we're terrified and then it's normal. Mm -hmm. We're terrified and then it's normal. I think that's I think that's normal. Normally terrifying. <laughs> it's normally terrifying. <laughs> the the thing that's unfortunate for us as a species is we don't have anything to compare our progression to. Every time there's something new or something unknown, there's fear of this unknowable future. And I think that has that's caused kind of like a pause on our innovation. And it, yet I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. And no, yet no. it's not a pause on manufacturing. Yeah. And it's not a pause on the innovations that we do have rapidly overproducing and, and overdeveloping in the sense that I was just thinking when you said that he and, and people of his generation having gone through the horrors of World War II, he was in the RAF, this guy to the very end, even in the slightly bittersweet moments of being 90 or one and, and infirmed there was an innate optimism and excitement about the possibilities of the future and how exciting it was for him to look back and he'd seen so much more progress in his lifetime than he, he ever thought he would whereas now we are so pessimistic and, and, and feudalistic it about the future. It feels that way I used to be so excited by technology and now and it's just when like a new device comes out or something like that, I'm like, oh, great. Yeah. Some more cruft to add to the pile of just like horribly disconcerting waste that we are accumulating and producing. And also the fear of AI of this past year, uh, adding on to that, this yeah. sense of fatalism about everything and that the idea that there really isn't the future and everybody's like well we don't know the future so this must be the end of the world <laughs> when there's no reason to think that other than the just being scared of not knowing the future and it could be as easy as a few individuals saying moratorium on ai yeah just pause it would just take a few yeah. because we know at this point you know mm -hmm. it's not countries yeah. it's it's billion trillionaires yeah. that are calling these shots so all they got to do is say just stop for a second and think about it the problem is human lifespan is so short do these people really think that the new generation is like the new generation yeah not not like, interested in investing in the stymied innovation horrible addiction and exploitation of fossil fuel products and usually through the only successful method which is massive disinformation campaigns and misinformation campaigns right. which have rippling effects as we know throughout all of society and they're they're doing it again with the very thing we're talking about they're they're paying for all the campaigns about this feudalistic sensibility well you know here's arthur c Clarke in 1964 while he's writing about how 
predicting exactly what we're talking about now right now being overtaken by the machines being the next step in the evolution and being yeah. totally cool with that because look as human beings we we were better than cro mag and we feel that's a good thing well what he suggested was even if artificial intelligence were to come to be our main computational mm -hmm. core the human mind is creative in a way that machines will never be and it may be due to the organic nature of it it could be honestly just because of the weird flawed organic nature of it because we're the evolution of millions of different creatures that we've probably never met and maybe never will but the idea that we're unique enough to still be the viable and dominant culture is interesting from his mm -hmm. uh, 60s prediction. All present computers are mechanical morons. They cannot really think. They can only do things for which they are programmed. But this will not always be true. In fact, um, probably before the end of this century, we will be able to construct computers or artificial intelligences which can go out on their own and develop lines of thought irrespective of any programming and which may in principle be more intelligent than we are. What do you think the chances are that we will be able to develop computers using some technology or another which achieve what we would call consciousness? I think there's no doubt about it. I'm fond of quoting Marvin Minsky who asked someone asked him can a machine think? And he answered, I'm a machine and I think. <laughs> There's a recurring theme in, in a lot of your stories. The dialect for Frankenstein is one uh, about the balance between control, between man and machine. And uh, I wonder, looking at the, at the rate at which technology is, is progressing now and how we're able to build in intelligence, certain dimensions of intelligence into these various electronic gadgets, uh, do we really have to worry? What, what do you think the balance will be between uh, control of the, of the world or of the universe by man or by machine? Um, I don't think we have to worry because there's nothing we can do about it now. <laughs> and I only hope that our silicon successors will treat us kindly. You mean it's too late? Too late already. <laughs> the difference between the organic and the synthetic from just an origin perspective and just the natural state of things, what is natural and what is not natural. Like, if you want to get philosophical, we're unique because we, we can't help but be unique. You know, we're two, we're two men in our 30s. Every sperm that we've ever manufactured in our bodies has been unique. If you're a woman, every egg you were born with has a unique genetic structure based on your DNA. Because that's the natural way of it. And, you know, it's a crapshoot. Yeah, you never know what you know. you're going to get. And then it's taken us however many thousands of years to evolve to the point where we can clone a sheep and then break down the human genome and then start talking about maybe cloning human body parts way off from cloning a human being still. Meanwhile, with a computer, like, how hard would it be to make every individual, every computer that's ever manufactured individual with its own individual personality how much coding would it take what kinds of algorithms and predictive things would you have to do once or twice or three times to make something that every machine infinitely unique 
because that's not the natural state of things. The natural state of the that world is homogeneity. Yeah. So you're never going to get the individual unique perspectives that a human being has with its own life and regardless of the experiences just the genetic makeup that's different because of our yeah what's it, our i mean mendel you know all the computers you buy that you know that 750 graphics card you're going to get the same ge force that i got you know if you didn't then you'll send it back <laughs> right you probably got it's a bag of sand the same. <laughs> right i've definitely seen this but yeah. also that applies to our brains, too. So last week we talked about, not Giles, the guy from Google. He, he was talking about how his fear was that the brain... Oh, the was, gentleman that... Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was afraid that rather than trying to replicate the best we can, this incredible human brain that's way beyond what we could ever do, that maybe, oops, this is more complex than the human brain, and so we're already training something that's more powerful then the brain is different than the mind. Because the mind, in the sense that we're talking about with creativity and unique talents and, and compassion and empathy and, and different kinds of wisdom. It's not replicable. It's not the same as what's in the brain. So we do have that advantage. We do have a mind above the brain that-, that Even at this point, code in. every time I hear, it's unfortunate because it's mostly when other people show me social media stuff and it's the AI voice. Do you take that stuff seriously? I feel like when I hear that stuff now, it discredits it immediately for me. Like, oh, you you weren't able to actually get on a microphone and record this yourself. You're just using a text to AI algorithm to do your speech. That not only is that low effort, but it's disconcerting in a way that it feels like false information. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of people use this yeah. and malicious political ways and scientific ways to try to seem professional mm-hmm. i guess i don't know if you've come across it yeah i have and it's always every time i hear it i'm just like no nope, i'm not gonna watch unless someone is literally just trying to show me a video for my personal mm-hmm. preference though just put text mm-hmm. you don't need an ai voice if you can't say it yourself, just put it in text. And if you can't say it yourself, then it's a great tool for somebody, you know, who has lost their voice, you know, who has lost their sight, who who has lost their ability for speech. You know, these things are fantastic for that. It's not what we're saying at all. They're but being the abused, idea that, that you can basically just cut and paste something, put it in there, that, also, that is also taking work away from voiceover artists. You know, we 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 do our own this week in science, and all of our cute AI little vocal stuff that we were doing last year was all you know. It was just kind of a, a meta joke for us while we were talking about everything going on with the history Especially of Hal. With Hal, yeah. So you know, that's kind of just came out of that. We're you know not using those anymore uh, for political reasons, because frankly, it's just it, it has gotten political, and, and especially being uh, at least speaking for myself. Um, an amateur musician. Yeah, that I was going to say, as a professional that musician, was, that loves got making music. Best so. interest here. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, f- I feel the same way about the ability to generate that kind of content with the complete lack of skill um, that is involved with it is a big reason why, like the strike and 
complications coming from AI writing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's at the forefront of our minds. We don't we don't want content to be written by not we don't want entertainment written by AI. We don't we don't need anything written by AI to be honest. No, even that's not that's not what they were there for. Is, yeah, this is going to destroy individuality of reporting it's going to destroy the flavor of different writers especially from different cultures and another one of arthur c clark's wishes was that we take in the idea of a global tribe and kind of become like a a true people of the mm -hmm. earth and not segregated by boundaries and he wanted one earth one tribe these algorithms could this is like the worst this is the monkey's paw option of amalgamation <laughs> like mm -hmm. the ai english generated voice is destroying culture left and right and i hope that either a moratorium or a stopgap or something that can pause the development of this and really give the reins back to the writers actors and the power to really individualize media we do not need this to be automated breathing needs to be automated heartbeat needs to be automated blinking needs to be automated but i don't want my next star wars movie or cooking show or whatever to be written by a robot if we're only as good as the best of our culture then we're making a a conscious effort to devolve because it's financially responsible is fiscally responsible to the shareholders as Kurt Vonnegut said we'll be the first civilization in the history of the universe to fail to save itself from extinction because it's not cost effective wow let's get some slaughterhouse up in here <laughs> so not to mix metaphors or authors too much here <laughs> looking as far into the technological future as I dare I'd like to describe the invention to end all inventions. I call it the replicator, and it's simply a duplicating machine. But it's a duplicating machine that can make an exact copy of anything. Now, we're already familiar with perfect copies of printing, of pictures, and of sounds. Yet, the camera and the tape recorder would have seemed miraculous to our ancestors. And uh, to a medieval monk, who perhaps in his whole life only saw a few dozen books, each one patiently copied by hand, our present world in which literally millions of books exist would again have seemed absolutely inconceivable. Can we imagine a world in which objects can be made as easily as today we can make books? In fact, cynics may doubt if any human society could survive an invention which would lead to unlimited abundance and the final ending of the curse of Adam. And yet, you know, human beings are almost infinitely adaptable. Look at the incredible changes we've experienced and survived from the Stone Age to the present time. And yet even greater changes are still to come. That optimism, though, that, that Clark had about all of this, still with knowing that this, you know, thinking all these things in advance, you know, if you are considered the prophet of the future, then you are thinking about things so far in advance. You know, it's no wonder George Lucas always looks depressed. You know, what, what, what has he figured out 
already that we don't know. <laughs> and it, and I don't think it's about the inevitability of things always getting worse because they don't always get worse, but they do if They're we cyclical. get our collective mindsets into the idea that it does. It's cyclical. And the problem is we've got to get to a point where there's a majority of the individuals on Earth that believe in the cycle. They have to know how to empower the next generation to continue this cycle. I, I think a lot of the problems that we've had it has been a generational thing. The guys taking care of guys has to end. It's got to stop. And Arthur C. Clarke knew this and he saw it happen. He saw it happen with the black boxing of UFO documents that consistently happened all the way through his whole life. It needs to happen in a way that we are not creating organizations that are untouchable by Congress. We do not need to have organizations like that. And this is why we haven't progressed. Well, you would love these hearings, though, these congressional UFO hearings. Oh, it's hearings, great. They? They're fantastic. All up in it. The thing that really interests me isn't so much human communications, but communications with other intelligences elsewhere. And uh, this is the biggest unknown, of course, among the most exciting prospects. Will we ever pick up signals from space, radio signals, or any other kind of signal? Everybody feels sure there must be all sorts of higher civilizations out there with tremendous technological capabilities. And we ought to be able to pick up their. Uh, their signals, even if they're not beamed at us, they must have tremendous powers to play with. And I hope that I live to see you know, the first reception of a signal from outer space. Do you think that you will? Do you think it's that close? It could happen tomorrow. Nobody knows. It could happen tomorrow. It might be in the evening papers right now that someone has picked up the first signal. And you've, you have Air Force servicemen that have decorated service records for outstanding service saying, there's not a safe place to go to tell people that we see UAPs on a regular basis, and they are a threat not only to national security, but to, like, our planet in general. And then that stuff just gets buried. Buried in organizations that have 80-year disclosure. Yeah, um, the contracts, yeah. Contracts, yeah. yeah. That's why you have so many deathbed confessions, which, of course, then people are easy to... To be skeptical of, cause yeah, because well, they're delusional. Lines. Well, what's the last thing you want to get off your chest? I wonder how skeptical you'd be if he'd said there's buried treasure in the back behind right. the stove. All the cover-ups, uh, you know, we we've talked at length, and I don't truly believe that we've been visited by like another alien species. But I don't deny the absolutely repugnant handling of the information, of the situations, the people that have come forth. Like, we need to know about these things. They might even be extraterrestrial in nature, but to me, the compounding lack of evidence and the compounding secrecy of the government makes me think that it's all political. And it has nothing to do with ETs. It has nothing to do with reverse engineering major technology to, to gain an advantage on another country. We're all just pawns in the chessboard and they've black boxed themselves to a point where it doesn't matter to them mr fravor the tic-tac incident that you and that 
with, with that you were engaged occurred in 2004. What kind of reporting took place after that incident? None. We had a standard debrief where the backseaters went down to our uh, carrier intel center and briefed what had happened, and that was it. No one else talked to us, and I was in the top 20 in the battle group. No one came. That captain was aware, the admiral was aware, nothing was done. Your commanding officers provide any sort of justification? No, because I was the commanding officer of the okay. squadron, so no. Was this incident the only UAP event that you encountered while you were a pilot? Yes, it was. Okay. Um, this is for any one of you. Based on based off of each of your experiences and observations, do you believe UAPs pose a potential threat to our national security? Yes, and here's why. The, the technology that we faced was far superior than anything that we had, and you could put that anywhere. If you, if you had one, you captured one, you reverse engineered it, you got it to work, you're talking something that can go into space, go someplace, drop down in a matter of seconds, do whatever it wants, and leave, and there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing. Okay. Either the other issue. Well, I would also like to add, from a commercial aviation and military aviation perspective, we deal with uncertainty in our operating space as a matter of uh, of our professional actions. Identifying friend from foe is is very important to us, uh, and so when we have unidentified targets and we continue to ignore those due to a stigma or a fear of what it could be, that's an opening that our adversaries can take advantage of. What, what, what uh, steps should be taken to better understand and respond to UAP encounters in the interest of national security? There needs to be a location where this information is centralized for processing and there needs to be a two-way communication loop so the operators on the front end have a feedback and can can get best practices on how to process information, what to do, uh, and to ensure that they, they their reporting is being listened to. The Tic Tacs, man. The Tic Tacs are interesting. Mm -hmm. 80,000 feet. <laughs> and, I, and I love that airman. He's like, and if, in case you don't know, 80,000 feet is space. Yes. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, brother. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> But he was talking about these objects going from 80,000 feet to 20,000 feet in like a second, just and then hovering mm -hmm. 20,000 feet in the air and then just, yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah. know. Oh, I don't know what to think. It is. And, and it could be frightening, but it's also exciting because the future is also exciting. There's never been a more exciting time to be alive than there right now at this very moment. We need to check out the experiment again which was Arthur C. Clarke's idea for 2001, where they segregated a whole group of people and told them they were aliens. Oh, and then studied the reaction. Yeah. And they all had like existential crises and violent outbursts. Yes. Suicide, murder, mm -hmm. like all kinds of, it just completely broke down the test subjects yeah another tiresome subject of course is life on other planets but i was going to ask you once uh, you once made a statement about that that you thought it was possible why do we always assume that if there is life on another planet that it's superior life that, it, that we always assume that they're ahead of us don't we in most it's science fiction, hard to imagine the reverse hard to imagine anyone dumber than me <laughs> yeah maybe that's it but um actually there is a logical reason i mean we are a very new species mm depending on what you call Homo sapiens, we've been around at most 100,000 years in a recognizably human form. And that's a mere moment, that's just the last you know, few seconds in the history of the universe. 
So if life got started almost anywhere on any other planet, it might have, it would, one would expect by the sheer laws of probability, be hundreds of thousands, millions even, years ahead of us now. And, and, and no one ever assumes that it would be behind us, because if they were able to contact us, then presumably well, they're more advanced be, than we are. Unless, precisely. of course, we discovered them somehow. This may happen as well, of course. Mm -hmm. they're prob I'd say there's a good probability there's some form of life in the solar system, uh, either on Mars or possibly in the clouds of Jupiter. But that will almost certainly be much more primitive. This would really upset religion, wouldn't it, in the fundamentalist sense, because then it would have to be, and God created the earth and several other places, or, I mean, the idea would have to be revised. In the... Not necessarily. There was a certain amount of uh, disturbance about this, but most religious people uh, now quite accept this. In fact, the Pope received the astronaut some years ago and you know, said this is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that only a few extreme fundamentalists will be really upset, even by intelligent life elsewhere. Mm -hmm. There's still those flat earthers in England, I believe, a few uh, left. There was one, but I think he's died recently, probably of a broken heart. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. It just makes me think, like, sorry, did the did our government do that? <laughs> did, yeah. did, did Arthur like find out about this? <laughs> and like, he's the kind of person that would be able to be like dropped into a society and be like, oh. I see that their forks are longer than their spoons, which yeah. means that they they must enjoy spearing their food instead of scooping it. And because of that, that must mean that they like to hunt in close combat, which means that they're uh, excellent runners and have great reflexes. And because they're able to slaughter their enemies that uh, quickly, uh, you know, the, this must have added to their cultural yeah. assignment to short clothing. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> extrapolate, extrapolate, extrapolate. I do regard myself primarily as a writer and an extrapolator, both in fiction and non-fiction. I often get some idea, or I used to, I don't know much writing now, and I say, this will make a good essay. I dream a lot, and occasionally I remember some of my dreams. I dream a lot about New York, which I shall never see again. England, which I hope I will see again, perhaps in the year 2001. And I also have some high-tech dreams, too, as you, can, as you might well imagine. They usually depend on what uh, videotapes I've been seeing last week at night or what I've been doing on my computer. So I, I do dream a lot. Occasionally, I have had some ideas in dreams that have been useful in stories, but that's very seldom, very rare. I usually get most of my ideas when I'm swimming or having a massage or soaking in the bath. Some people think that science has caught up with science fiction. In one narrow sense, this is true. No one writes any more stories about the first journey to the moon. But science fiction is always 20, 30, 50 years ahead of science. The new scientific discoveries fuel the next generation of science fiction. There's no danger of science ever catching up with the science fiction writers. As I approach my 90th birthday, my friends are asking me how it feels to have completed 90 orbits around the sun. Well, I actually don't feel a day older than 89. Man, after listening to Arthur C. Clarke's coming up on 90 kind of retrospect, it's interesting to think back on 
all of the things that have come and gone since then. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the big points he wanted to make was he feels like a great gratitude for his long life, but also a deep sadness because his colleagues and a lot of his confidants are, have been committed to the great realm at this point. So kind of a bittersweet reflection on life, but I love that he referred to it as 90 orbits around the sun. Yes. It seems so much more majestic than uh, pinning it down with the terminology that we we use in complete disregard of its actual meaning. Like, a year is so much more than what we give it. But, like, our trip around mm-hmm. the sun isn't made up by people. Yeah. It just is what it is. And how many times you make it around is a detectable and discernible way of calculating your longevity. Yeah. So, And as you say, just a much more majestic and meaningful way and fills your life with more meaning by thinking of it that way in your own odyssey, you know? Yeah, we're traveling around our (laughs) celestial crown. What are you doing wherever you're sitting, you know? And also our galaxy is blasting off at, you know, millions of miles a second. So it's reckoned into the unknown so we're not just stationary we're we're moving through our own universe in our little galaxy ship and our little earth ship so even if you haven't gone anywhere you have however little we think we're doing in our lives we're in the middle of an incredible cosmic journey yeah that's that's happening for the first time in the history of this universe I still can't quite believe that we've just marked the 50th anniversary of the space age. We've accomplished a great deal in that time, but the golden age of space is only just beginning. Well, we space cadets of the British Interplanetary Society spent all our spare time discussing space travel. We didn't imagine that it lay in our own near future. Over the next 50 years, thousands of people will travel to Earth orbit and then to the moon and beyond. Space travel and space tourism will one day become almost as commonplace as flying to exotic destinations on our own planet. Arthur C. Clarke has three wishes. As I complete 90 orbits, I have no regrets and no more personal ambitions. But if I may be allowed just three wishes, they would be these. Firstly, I would like to see some evidence of extraterrestrial life. I've always believed that we're not alone in the universe, but we're still waiting for E.T. to call us or give us some kind of sign. He is wondering why we haven't heard from anything at this point. We have no way of guessing when this might happen. I hope sooner rather than later. The second, he wants the world to free themselves of the dependence of fossil fuels 
for obvious reasons. We're literally baking ourselves alive. And I think this summer has really seen a, a new precedent and global temperatures. And a lot of this can be directly tracked back to the carbon cycle that we've completely abused. Secondly, I would like to see us kick our current addiction to oil and adopt clean energy sources. For over a decade, I've been monitoring various new energy experiments, but they've yet to produce commercial scale results. Climate change has now added a new sense of urgency. Our civilization depends on energy, but we can't allow oil and coal to slowly bake our planet. And his third, he wants peace for Sri Lanka, mm. a area that's been war-torn and completely impoverished. The third wish is one closer to home. I've been living in Sri Lanka for 50 years, and half that time I've been a sad witness to the bitter conflict that divides my adopted country. I dearly wish to see lasting peace established in Sri Lanka as soon as possible. But I'm aware that peace cannot just be wished. It requires a great deal of hard work, courage, and persistence. He says he has no regrets. You know, it made me kind of... Uh, let me think about this for a second. This, uh -huh. this really hurt me in a way that was kind of weird. But like... He has no regrets. He also has no more ambitions. But I think that's... I think that's good. He didn't leave any stones unturned no. uh, during his time here. He, he felt... I guess he felt at that point like... I'm happy to watch the human race evolve, is what he said. I'm now perfectly happy to step aside and watch how things evolve. But that... That sentence made me very uncomfortable for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty existential. Like he, he's comfortable in saying that he has no more ambitions and not in a way that he's like disenfranchised or anything. He's, he's come to the end of his existence and he knows that. 2008, right? Mm-hmm. 2008. To have exhausted every possibility after so many times that he said he'd exhausted every possibility because there was an interview in 1980 yeah. where he says, yeah, I'm through writing books. <laughs> I've done nearly 50 books or maybe more than 50 books and that seems enough for one lifetime. Also, I want to enjoy myself when I'm still young enough to get around and do some more skin diving and play table tennis and see Sri Lanka. Uh, also at this point, there's nothing more I want to say. Maybe in five years' time, if I do have ideas for another book, I'll write it, but I rather hope I won't. And perhaps most important of all, in The Fantasy of Paradise, I have brought together some themes which nobody else could ever have done. The Sri Lanka background and the space background. Uh, this isn't boasting, but I'm the only person who's ever lived who has those two particular backgrounds. And I think it was Andre Gide who once said that if there's anything anyone else can do, don't do it. But here's something that nobody else could do, and I've done it, and I feel content about with that. And of course, how many books did he write since 1984? Like and 2004? then in 2000, like one or two, I think he released 3000 Space Odyssey. Yeah, 3001, yeah. I'm like, bro, you're not, you're not. <laughs> yeah. 
But wow. as you say, it's you know so much respect for that because what he's saying in that interview in 1980 is that he doesn't feel like he has anything else to say. And if at some point in the future he does, then he'll plan a book and he'll write it. And he did. And then he did again. Again, so much respect to him for not just saying, well, I'm just going to try and squeeze the turnip that is my name in the sci-fi world. No, if he's going to sit down and spend that time and write the book, then he's going to have to have a reason to do it and some something to say about the condition of something poignant world or human new yeah, yeah he's, otherwise he's, he could be climbing mountains or snorkeling i'm looking forward very much to diving again uh, i had my first open sea dive last week it was down to, uh, 60 feet down to 60 feet i was in the water for about 40 minutes mostly at 30 or 40 feet absolutely perfect visibility a lot of fish. Hundred visibility, at least, almost hundred feet, I'd say. I'd say so. I can see no, one the thing is that that the barge is about hundred and twenty-five feet. Okay. Long. So I I look from the barge, yeah. you can see the right there. Then I'm at least hundred twenty-five. Yeah. If you don't want any clear, it wouldn't look real. <laughs> yeah. It'd look it fake is. if it was any clear. Oh, yeah. If I never do another dive, that'll be a good way to go out. Beautiful. I'm sometimes asked how I would like to be remembered. I've had a diverse career as a writer, underwater explorer, space promoter, and the science popularizer. Of all these, I want to be remembered most as a writer, one who entertained readers and hopefully stretched their imaginations as well. Mass when the trumpets of the Lord hurled you know, the end of everything, the finale of Sibelius's Second Symphony, and I finally settled on the piece of music which really introduced me to the whole genre. And I'd like to pay a tribute to my French master, Mr. Trevet, at Hewish's Grammar School, 70 odd years ago, when he tried to introduce our, us country bumpkins to the wonders of music with an old wound up 78 gramophone. And the music he played, which I still recall, was the Stokowski transcription of Bach's Staccato and Fugue in D. I think is the most dramatic and awe-inspiring piece of music that's ever been written. And they used it as a finale for what I consider my favorite short story, Transit of Earth, which describes the last moments of the only survivor of the first Mars expedition, which I set in 1984, because back in 1970, when I wrote it, we still thought we might be on Mars in 84. And in that year, something interesting happens. A transit of Earth, as seen from Mars, the Earth will move like a little black dot across the face of the sun. It won't happen again for a hundred years till 2084, by an odd coincidence. 
I had my non-survivor seeing this happen and then knowing he's going to die, that his oxygen is running out. And this is his words. I don't know what's waiting for me out there, and I'll probably never see it. But on this starveling world, it must be desperate for carbon, phosphorus, oxygen, calcium. It can use me. And when my oxygen alarm gives its final ping somewhere down there in that haunted wilderness, I'm going to finish in style. As soon as I have difficulty in breathing, I'll get off the Mars car and start walking with a playback unit plugged into my helmet and going full blast. For sheer triumphant power and glory, there's nothing in the whole of music to match the Takata and Fugue in D. I won't have time to hear all of it. That doesn't matter. Johann Sebastian, here I come. saying thank you and goodbye from Colombo.